So our sermon text this afternoon is Luke chapter 4, reading from verses 31 to 44. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. I'll pray before we read that. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, as we now study your word, I pray, Father, that you would give me things to say, help me to speak according to your will and according to your wisdom. And please sit here. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 4, starting at verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this message. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Amen. May God bless his word to us. So before we get going with this actual text, I just sort of remind those who are here and the visitors, if you haven't heard these messages, back in 2020, I preached a short mess, a short series. It was three sermons called Spiritual War and Evangelism. Um, there were three basic assumptions in that, in that series or three basic teachings in that series. First, all who are outside of Christ are under the power of Satan. To a greater or a lesser degree, all who are outside of Christ are under Satan. The second thing that I taught in that series was that Exorcism, as done by our Lord, was a, a sign ministry. It was a sign to the people around about who, who saw this happen. And basically, we could understand it as being a visible salvation. How do you show what's happening in the heart of a person? Salvation is more or less invisible in a way. Well, you see the evil being driven out of a person. You see the person being changed by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Remember, we took that reading from Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus spoke of, I cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're saved by the exercise of the power of the Holy Spirit. And the final, the final thing is a therefore, so it comes almost as a syllogism. The therefore is, if this is true, all true evangelism is to a greater or lesser degree exorcism and apart from regeneration, there is no true exorcism. Summing up, all are under the power of Satan. Exorcism 
as exercised by Jesus and the apostles, was a sign, a visible showing forth of salvation. All evangelism, to a greater or a lesser degree, is an exorcism. And apart from regeneration, there is no exorcism. Jesus comes to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he comes to teach. Um, The passage that we're looking at starts with Jesus' teaching and it finishes with Jesus' teaching and Jesus gives the priority to teaching, teaching and instructing in the word of God, teaching the people to obey God, explaining the scriptures. But the people are under, as it were, darkness, the power of the evil one. They're under darkness. What would it be like if the people are under darkness? Well, the devil's come to church and the world is in rebellion against God's created order and instead of God's people exercising dominion over the world, the world is exercising dominion over the people. So they're the three sort of main points that I've got here today. The people are in darkness, the devils are in the church and creation being corrupted was exercising dominion over people when it was God's purpose in creation that people exercise dominion over creation. Let's have a look. The people were in darkness. Looking at chapter 4 and verse 32. Jesus has come down to Capernaum in the city of Galilee, in a, sorry, a city of Galilee, and he's teaching on the Sabbath and they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. They'd never heard anything like it. They'd never had the scriptures explained. They'd never had the scriptures truly applied. The people were in, as it were, spiritual darkness. Jesus, at the end of our passage, goes forward at verse 43. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He went out to teach. He came to teach. So, In terms of thinking about the things that Jesus did in his earthly ministry, what could you prioritise and say is the thing that was most important? He taught. He taught the word of God. He taught the people to understand the scriptures. He opened their eyes to the truth of the word of God. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, the Lord willing will get there one day, Jesus taught those taught those two dejected disciples that thought they had lost their Messiah. He taught them. Remember, he he meets these two people. They're on the road to Emmaus. They're on the road to a village. And they're talking in an obviously very dejected and defeated way. And he says, what troubles you? And their answer was, well, there was this fellow, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. We thought he was the saviour. We thought he was the king of the world. We thought that all things were possible through the Lord Jesus Christ and he's dead. And we're told that Jesus explained to them from the scriptures. Basically, the way we would put it is from Genesis to Malachi. He opened the scriptures to them. He explained to them from the scriptures all of these things, explaining to them that the Christ must die and must be raised again. He taught them from the scriptures. Their eyes later on were opened at the breaking of the bread. Jesus comes a teaching Now, he's teaching about the kingdom of God. 
I must preach, at verse 43, the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. What's a kingdom? It's where the king reigns. What's the good news? Jesus is explaining to them the king has come and the king rules. The king reigns. Things are wrong. You people are not having the scriptures explained to you, yet you're supposed to be the people of God. The king has come and the king rules and the king reigns. And so using the scriptures, he explains to them the things of salvation. Turn, if you want to, very quickly in your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 12. We'll pick up our reading at verse 36. Jesus speaking, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So, The Apostle John, writing the Gospel of John, refers us to the book of Isaiah. He's referring us particularly to to Isaiah, we would say Isaiah chapter 6. What's he saying? Well, he's saying that Isaiah, in his vision in the temple, where he saw the Lord lifted up, was looking upon Jesus. He saw our pre-incarnate Saviour, the Lord Jesus, but I want us to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. At verse 1 it reads, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So what's Isaiah saying? A king who's been a king for over 40 years, one of the longest reigning kings of Judah, has died. Now, You've got to assume that he was somewhat in shock. This important man has died. He said, but I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He goes on to speak about keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on perceiving but do not perceive. That's the words of the Lord to Isaiah. What Isaiah is saying is, I saw the king died. And then God showed me who really is the king. The king is Yahweh himself, lifted up, sitting upon a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Jesus came to the people preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, and he himself is the king establishing his kingdom. He himself is the one who is bringing this setting to rights. The people are in darkness. They don't understand the scriptures. They need to be taught the scriptures. Symptomatic of the people being in darkness. Well, we see it at verse 33. 
And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice. When I read a verse like that, there are so many questions in my mind. How long had he had the spirit of an unclean demon? How many services had he attended with the spirit of an unclean demon? How much scripture had he heard read with the spirit of an unclean demon? How many psalms had he recited in the synagogue with the fellow worshippers and he had the spirit of an unclean demon? We can bring our wickedness into a church service. People can bring their wickedness into a church service. People can be under a religious delusion. I'm doing all that I should do, therefore I have nothing to worry about. And still they can be under enslavement to sin. There's a demon spirit at the church service and the gospel is preached and suddenly that which was hidden becomes public. That which was in the darkness is dragged into the light. This demon spirit was in the darkness. I wonder if everybody thought before that this was a very good fellow, a very good, religious, faithful fellow. They could find no fault in him. But at the preaching of the kingdom, this unclean spirit cries, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. How did he know? Where did he know that much from? The people might not have known who Jesus was at that point, but one thing's for sure and for certain, the spirits knew. The demons knew. They knew who Jesus was, the Holy One of God. James chapter 2.19 reads, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The evil has been brought out into the light. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. The only person in Scripture who had any kind of power over fallen spirits previously was King David himself. King David was able to play music, and though he could not bring deliverance to Saul, he was able to play music. I don't know if he sang, I don't know if he recited psalms whilst playing music, that much I don't know. But at least for a period of time, and at least sometimes in the providence of God, David was able to play music that brought relief to King Saul. And so we read earlier about that spirit of the Lord that left King Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord came to King Saul. And there's something that might blow a lot of people's theology just cleaned out the window. Where did Lord get this evil? I'm sorry, where did Saul get this evil spirit from? God sent it to him. God enslaved him in his sin. He had heard the word of the Lord through the prophet Samuel and he had chosen to be willfully, deliberately disobedient and he was confirmed in his wickedness. His heart was hardened. He was delivered over to Satan. A spirit from God, a troublesome spirit from God was sent to King Saul. Well, we have here the people of Israel. This man was a Jew. He was in the synagogue service and he had an unclean spirit. And Jesus 
rebuked him. Be silent and come out of him. And the demon came out of him, having done him no harm. So once again, they're amazed. First of all, they're astonished at his teaching. Now they're amazed at his authority. What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding legion. Sorry, surrounding region. Thinking of another unclean spirit, obviously. I was. So the king comes. The king preaches the kingdom. The king explains the scriptures. And when a rebel basically declares his hand, the king takes power. Remember, Luke very carefully has built for us this scenario. Remember, he called Adam the son of God. And now he calls Jesus the son of God. And we're supposed to be thinking, everything was set to wrong when Adam fell into sin. And the power that man was supposed to exercise, the dominion that man was supposed to have, was surrendered. Well, now along comes this one, this Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham, son of God. And Jesus is now exercising dominion. Even the unclean spirits obey him. They know who he is and they do as he tells them. If it's God who sent an unclean spirit into King Saul, we can ask a question. Who is Jesus that he an unclean spirit out of a man? That by the power of God's Holy Spirit, he can send an unclean spirit out of a man. And so it's a sign that testifies that the king is divine. This Jesus, he's the king. He's the son of God. Let's read on at verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf and he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, it's an interesting little passage here. Luke speaks of Jesus treating the disease as though it were a fallen spirit or a demon. I don't think he's actually saying that the disease was caused by a fallen spirit or a demon. I think what he wants us to understand is that that exact same authority that Jesus exercised over fallen spirits, demons, devils, whatever we want to call them, Jesus has that exact same authority over creation. Remember what the man was supposed to do. Go out into the world and take dominion over it. And there was no death in the world at that time. If there were bacteria in the world at that time, viruses, whatever they may have been, they had a role in God's creation. God's creation was basically set on edge. Creation, creation we're told in Romans chapter 8, groaned with the burden of sin. Instead of the man having dominion over the creation, he fell into sin and creation corrupted, exercised dominion over the man. And that's what's happening here. Creation corrupted is exercising dominion over this woman, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. This is not the way God intended creation to be. You know, we get into all these discussions again. The what ifs, the, the how is this supposed to be? Well, just remember, it's, it's a what if that you should always carry in the back of your mind. Death, 
And therefore, all the means that death is brought about are the result of sin. The man was tested in the garden. Adam was tested. If he had not have fallen into sin, death would not have been at work in either him or any of his offspring. That's always the if. If the man had not fallen into sin, you can come thousands of years forward in history, you can come to Simon Peter's mother-in-law who was ill with a high fever. Back in the day, most likely that was going to be fatal. It was, you know, we would just use the phrase, it was a toss of a coin, heads or tails, whether someone was going to survive any sickness back in the day. No effective drugs, no effective treatments. You can go all, you can go all those thousands of years forward from creation all the way to Simon's mother-in-law being ill with a high fever and say, well, here is the result of Adam's sin. Corrupt creation is exercising dominion over humanity. And what Luke wants us to see is the king comes preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and he has the authority to tell that creation, get back into your place. He rebukes the fever. Stop making this woman sick. She is now going to be well. He drives the sickness from her. The harm, the damage that has been done by sin is being reversed by the works of Jesus. That which is wrong, he is now setting to rights. And so he takes power over illness. Immediately she rose and began to serve them. This wasn't just, um, you know, slowly but surely she got better. You know, you reach a crisis, you, you get sick. You get, a, you get a bad flu or whatever it might be. You get sick, your temperature rises, you feel worse and you feel worse and you feel worse and then comes the day when not feeling quite so bad today. And you make this long, slow recovery and it might take two, three, four, five days. The, the, the worst flu I ever had was um, some years ago when the bird flu went around. I got a dose of that. And, that you know, from the day I started to get better, I still had symptoms for about a week. It took a long time to get over that. The fever left her and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. One thing about this king, he preaches his own gospel. He proclaims his own good news. And only those whom he ordains are preaching the good news. His own people, those whom he saves, those whom he calls, those whom he will cleanse. Demons and devils, they don't proclaim his identity. You know, you are the son of God. Be silent. Be silent. And he rebukes them and he drives them out. It's interesting, back at verse 34, that first phrase that um, the unclean spirit speaks, what have you to do with us? It's sort of a long sentence, really. It's sort of, what has this to do with you? What has this to do with us? Is sort of the way the sentence goes. In other words, he's kind of asking, what common ground do we have? You have nothing to do with me. I have nothing to do with you. 
What common ground do we have? Well, Jesus' answer is pretty clear. We have none whatsoever. Go. We have no common ground. Get out. I have nothing to do with you. You have nothing to do with me. You don't even get to speak about me. Get out. He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. You don't want demon-possessed people running around proclaiming that the Messiah has come. You don't want demons running around proclaiming that the Messiah has come. There's, there's nothing that looks worse in the world than a madman supposedly proclaiming the truth. We know a few. We've had, we've had some come and go. There's nothing, there's nothing that looks worse in the world than an absolute halfway to insane madman running around claiming to be a Christian. He would not allow them to speak. Verse 42, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. The Gospel of Mark tells us he went into the desolate place to pray. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Stay. Stay. Stay with us. They would have kept him from leaving them. You know, that's not unusual. I mean, what was when when Jesus warned the apostles. You know, Peter makes his famous confession, you are the son of God. And Jesus says, yep, I'm the son of God. And we're going to Jerusalem and there I'm going to be spat upon. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to die. Peter says, oh, no, no. No, Lord. No such thing is going to happen to you. Don't leave us. Jesus came to preach the good news. He was preparing the ground for a later preaching of the gospel. He was preparing the ground for a later sowing of the seed. So he's moving around about. He's got an itinerant ministry. I must. I must. I have to. It's a military imperative. It's the same word a soldier would use if he was obeying an order from a superior officer. I must. This has to be done. This is not a matter of choice. I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns as well. For I was sent. You hear that? I was sent for this purpose. So just another question that arises. At verse 42, when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And we know from the Gospel of Mark that he went into that desolate place to pray. Was anyone's life more specifically prophesied and foreordained than Jesus's. You know, Jesus basically has told us that the whole of the Old Testament is about him, that he is the fulfilment of the promises of Scripture. No one's life was more clearly foreordained in its every aspect than the life of the Lord Jesus. And he went into a desolate place to pray. He went to pray. My friends, our life, you know, I'm sort of repeating again a point that I made this morning. Our life is in the hand of God. Our life is foreordained. We live according to the will of God. We will die according to the will of God. Every moment of our life is foreordained. And guess what? Our Lord Jesus prayed and we ought to be praying. We're called to be a people of prayer. And Jesus had not come just for one town. Remember, at Nazareth, 
He had not come for the people of Nazareth. He actually reminded them that in the Old Testament, Elijah ministered to a woman who was not of the people of Israel. And Elisha healed a man who was a Syrian. He hasn't come to one town. He hasn't come to one place. No one lays claim to some kind of local possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he's going to plant the church that is going to spread the word of God throughout all the world. I was sent for this purpose. And Luke says, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So just that final um, emphasis, he was preaching. He was preaching. He was teaching. My friends, we're called to live by and to live under the word of God. We're called to live under the scriptures proclaimed. And he was preaching. He didn't just go to these places and read some scripture. He went to these places and he read some scripture and he explained the scripture and he applied the scripture. He preached. He proclaimed. We have to sit under the preaching of the word of God. We have to sit under teachers. You know, it's... it's, it's I say this kind of half-jokingly. Sometimes when Lisa wants to punish me, she makes me listen to my own preaching. Which to me is actually very painful. I don't like the sound of my own voice. And the truth is when I realise how many slip-ups and mistakes I might make in the course of a sermon, I almost shrivel in on myself. But the point is, God calls men to preach his word. God calls Christians to sit under the preaching of the word. And whoever the man might be, and whatever his faults and his failings, and some of you know me pretty well and you're starting to know them all too well, but whatever that might be, preaching is a necessary part of the Christian diet. It's a necessary part of your spiritual life. You've got to sit under the teaching of the word, teaching that comes in the power of the Holy Spirit, Teaching that makes devils uncomfortable. Which means in some ways it's going to make us uncomfortable. And I'm not saying that we're demon-possessed. If we are in Christ, we are not demon-possessed. But solid, hard preaching has this way and this habit of rendering us uncomfortable. It both assures us and convicts us all at the same time. And we're called to sit under that kind of teaching. Sometimes the deeper the conviction, the more work that it's doing. You know, sometimes sometimes you've got to have that Job experience. God comes in the whirlwind and teaches him just what a proud little fool he was. And he says, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I put my hand over my mouth. I'm not going to speak. I'm not going to ask questions. God, you speak to me. We as Christians often have to be brought to this place. And my experience as a Christian is that more often than not, it's good, solid preaching from men called to preach that does this. It's good, solid preaching from men called to preach who are preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, whom God uses to do this work of conviction. We should always be ready to be convicted, just as we're always ready to give praise to God for the salvation that he has worked. We're to be convicted both 
of the wickedness of sin and to be convicted of the greatness of the salvation that God has worked on our behalf through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're called to answer to the preaching of the gospel. And we're called to, as it were, I'll I'll use a word, sponsor the preaching of the gospel. Let me put that another way. And I'm not really talking about money. How do you as a Christian, let's say you're not called to preach. Fine. You're not called to preach. You're supposed to hear preaching. You're supposed to sit under preaching. You're supposed to respond to preaching. How do you enable preaching? How do you enable preaching? You've got a role. You are in a church. You are in Christ. One of your roles is not just to be a passive recipient of blessing, but to be a means by which God works blessing out into the nation around about you, through your family, to your family, through the people around about you, to the church. How do you enable the preaching of the gospel? Part of that will be money in a church. Churches cost money to run. It costs money to get a congregation together. It costs money to do the things that need to be done. It costs money to have a man who can set aside some time and study. But there's more to it than that. Are you praying for the preaching of the gospel? I spoke about prayer. I speak again. Are you praying for the preaching of the gospel? Are you praying that the truth be proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit wherever you are? Wherever you are. It's one thing to say I don't get fed and I don't get much food and I understand that and I appreciate that. I've been in that situation. I can also confess to you that when I was in that situation, I failed to be praying for the one who was supposed to be feeding me. That's my fault. That's my failure. I fail to do that which I'm called to do. Pray for your preachers. Pray for their growth in grace. Pray for their growth in Christ-likeness. Pray that they be humbled whenever God see fit. Dangerous thing. Easy to become proud when people sit listening to what you've got to say. Easy to become a proud, arrogant person and to forget just how weak you actually are. Be praying for me. If, if you're sitting here, so I'll accept that you believe I've been called to preach and God has enabled me to preach, well, be praying for me. I know some do, but I'm telling you, remember to pray for me. I need your prayer. Apart from the Lord, I can do nothing. Apart from the Lord, I am nothing. My friends, apart from the Lord, all of us are nothing and we can do nothing. The proclamation of the word of God is one of the most important parts of our Christian diet. Bible knowledge is excellent and all Christians should be studying the scripture. I 100% believe that. But all Christians should also be sitting under Holy Spirit-empowered proclamation, Holy Spirit-empowered preaching. If it's for that reason that Jesus came, if he must preach and if he was sent for that purpose, well, what's changed? for people like you and I, what's changed for our lives. Make a business of sitting under the word of God and make a business of doing whatever it is you have to do 
to enable the word of God to be proclaimed. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and we give you praise that you have spoken to us so clearly through the scriptures and that you have spoken to us through Jesus Christ, your son. And we praise you that to know Jesus. Father, may we be in state of mind. Help us, Father, to remember that you are God and we are but your people. Help us, Father, to always be obedient to your word. Help us, Father, to always be fed by the Holy Spirit. These things we ask in Jesus' name.